0: message. Now, there is a thing that we're going to look at today, which we've all looked at, we've all seen, and we've all read, and we just read it. But we're going to stop and smell that rose, because the fact of the matter is, this rose has a lot of thorns in it. There is something that you're going to see today in a passage you've read many times that, frankly, is, should be frightening to you. Literally should cause you to stop and really assess for reasons that we'll get to in one second. But I want to show you this passage that we look at. At this point in time in Luke, where we are, Jesus has been arrested. He's been brought before Pilate, who found no wrong in him. He sent him to Herod, who's also found no wrong in him. And now he's back to Pilate. Then Pilate called together the leading priests and the other religious leaders, along with the people, and he announced this verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion. Now look, this is a primary theme that's going on in this passage. It's not the one we're looking at today, but this is a primary theme. The secular leader's tried Jesus in the way that they would and found him innocent. See that? It's an innocent man that's being put to death. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. That's the truth. But there's another theme that's in it. So I'll have him flogged and I'll release him. Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd with one voice they shouted, kill him and release Barabbas to us. huh? Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. There's a guy who's deserving of the death penalty if you believe in such things. The Pope does not, whatever, okay? Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death. So I'll have him flogged and then I will release him. But the mob shouted ever louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified and their voices prevailed. Whose voices? The mobs. Who is who? The Jewish people. Who is who? The people to whom God came and made them his people. His people are saying to Jesus, kill him. By the way, there's stupid people that will take that logic and say, "See, so the Jews killed Jesus. No, every person who's ever sinned killed Jesus. Are we all clear on that? So this isn't about Jewish people or Jewish versus Gentile and some stupid nonsense like that. What this is about is, okay, that we are the ones that killed him. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he sentenced Barabbas, the man in prison, He released Barabbas, the man from prison, insurrection, and murder, but he turned Jesus over them to do as they wished. Do you see this other theme that he's putting on there? He's putting the weight totally on the people that are crying for him to be crucified. Not the leaders, not the judges, not the legal system and so on. Rather, the people who are supposed to be God's people. Now, to get to the really shocking part of this for us today, I'm going to go to Matthew and just pick up a couple of verses about this same thing. So in Matthew it says, So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus? There's a tradition about releasing one at this point in time. For he knew they'd handed Jesus over because of envy. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas to execute Jesus. So when the mob in Luke, where we see the mob crying out, it's because they're being stirred up and riled by the chief priests and elders, and that's the shocking thing. Why? See, we read that, and we're so used to Jesus coming against the chief priests and the elders. We're so used to this conflict that's between them that we read it, and we don't think about something. We don't stop and smell this rose. Here's what's in this right now, and it is just Unbelievable. Think about who a chief priest is and what he does with his time. I've showed you before old, old pictures or old paintings of what they would do, but this is a modern example of what they still do to be a rabbi. You go to school all day long, and you do nothing but study the Word. Now, in Jesus' day, what they did all day long was they actually just copied the Word. They just wrote down the Hebrew, so they went this way. But they would write down the whole of the thing, And then, But this is a class actually in Jerusalem, and you can see. Look at this. Do you see how the hairstyles are all the same? Do you see how the the dress is all the same? Do you see the yarmulkes? Do you see everything else? Here's what I want you to see. In Jesus' day, the first level, which we've talked about before, is this. They would spend all day copying and all night discussing. They would copy the word all day long, and then their rabbis, the older ones, they would sit down, have dinner, and for the whole night, they would talk about what did they just copy mean. And this is what they did day after day after day for years before they could ever be considered a rabbi. But that's only a small portion of how much religiosity is in the culture. We simply do not have anything comparing to it today, even this school right here. In Jesus' day your hair was dictated. Your beard was dictated. Your clothes were dictated. The matching of your clothes was dictated. What you Ate was dictated. What you could not eat was dictated. What you how you washed your hands was dictated. How you interacted with your spouse was dictated. How you interacted with your children was dictated. How you interacted with your friends was dictated. How you did your business was dictated. How you did absolutely everything that you did in a day was dictated by the chief priests and the elders. Everything. You come to church here, and maybe you come, let's say, every other week. That's The average churchgoer is now down to about two times a month. Do you even think about me in the other two weeks? (laughs) Am I a factor at all in your life? Because, you know, in one way, I hope, and in another way, I hope not. Thank you. But do you see it? If you're a Jewish person you are thinking about what the chief priests and elders are dictating and doing and saying and how they're working it out a hundred times a day. Every day, everything you do, everything is prescribed, dictated, everything is laid out for you, and you are interacting with their decisions all the time. Right in the temple of God is this room. It doesn't look like that, by the way. That's just, you know, typical how we do things, but Bottom line, there was a room inside the temple where the chief priest is straight ahead. This is the Sanhedrin, 70, anybody know? Was it 72? I want to say 72, but somehow that's wrong. 71, something like that. But the bottom line is Jesus stood right there. When it says he was before the Sanhedrin, he was in that room standing right there, before the chief priests and the elders. This is, Israel is a theocracy, Yes, they're ruled by Rome, so their governmental structure, and if they hadn't have been, there would have been a king, but the king isn't the one who dictated what people did in life. It was the chief priests and the elders. They did everything. They decided everything. And in order to do that, that meant the chief priests and the elders had to be doing what? All day, every day. Thinking about God. They weren't going to the movies. They weren't you know, hanging out with their friends, I'm not saying they never did anything, but to you catch the drift all day, every day, by the chief priest and the elders, was thinking about God and how to apply what God would want to every situation. That's what they did. And if that's the case, then we have to ask a question which I think is just devastating. How is it even remotely possible that those who spent so much time pursuing God would fail so completely? And because we never point a bony finger at somebody else and make ourselves better than anyone, the real sermon that we're looking at today is there but for the grace of God go I. If they could make this mistake, what makes me think I'm somebody who won't make a mistake? To the contrary, they're better than I am. I'm worse. I'm more likely to. Now, yeah, New Testament, the Holy Spirit, and so on, but we're going to go into all of that. But you get the principle we're talking about here, right? So here's what this sermon is about. How are we supposed to actually get it right? If people that spent that much time with God got it wrong, and if we're likely to get it wrong, and I'm going to show you evidences of that all over the place, How are we supposed to get it right? And here's what's really going on underneath it. Anybody who's been alive long enough to have gone through a few decades knows something right now. And this, every generation always says the generation before them is the most tragic, or the generation that follows is the most tragic. So that's just, but but three years ago, I stood here in January and I told you that I felt that the Lord had said that he was withdrawing his hand of protection to a degree. I always want to say to a degree, he didn't withdraw it completely. If he did, this, this America would be unrecognizable to what it is even right now. But he withdrew his hand of protection to a degree that we would experience the consequences of our actions. Does anybody think that we're not doing that right now? Because there's so much confusion. There's so much disagreement. I'm losing personal friends. Now, this is not about politics I'm going to make this next statement. It's not about politics at all. If you're somebody who's involved in this right and left dialogue we're having to try and figure out how to be one, this is not about that at all. What I'm here to tell you is, is when I said that God had withdrawn his hand to a degree, the passage that I used, the passage I felt he wanted me to use, was Romans 1.18. And in Romans one eighteen, one of the hallmarks of him withdrawing his hand will be, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Now, this is a little different, but I'm taking it for us. We knew God, but we still haven't honored him. This is four weeks now the Lord has been saying the same thing with us. He's not saying it to condemn us. He's saying it to sober us. To get us to look mindfully at something that is extremely important. And what's being said is not just outside the church, but inside of it, not not honoring him or giving thanks, and so become futile in their thinking. Deception. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They really don't see that it's wrong. It's not they see it's wrong and they just want to do it so they're just kind of sweep it under the rug. They really don't see that it's wrong. Their hearts are darkened and they don't think it's wrong. In fact, they think that the things that God is saying are wrong. That's where it gets to. And it's happening right now. Claiming to be wise, we all become fools. Since we did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave us up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I am tasked by God. I don't do this kind of thing very often. I don't stand in I I know the authority that God has granted me by the mantling that he has put on me. I am completely aware of it. I do not stand in it often because I want to be part of a community that is trying to find God together. I don't want people to recognize me or or think that what I say is important because I'm a pastor. I want them to recognize it and believe it and discern it because they believe that what I'm saying is actually God. But I stand here today in a slightly different capacity, enough to be difference in kind, not just degree. I stand here today on a wall and I say, I'm warning us as I've been commanded by God to do. And God tells me that if I warn, for real, not if I just say it and then hope you get it, but if I do everything in my abilities and his abilities to get it across to people, to do my best to communicate the truth of it, if I stand in that place, then what God says, it is on the people to make their decisions now. But what he says also is, is if I fail to stand on the wall and call out, then the blood is on my head. I'm not trying to get the blood off of my head. My hands are as dirty as anybody's. But I do tell you that I stand here on the wall today and I'm trying to say something that I believe God is trying to say. And that is I think he's trying to say it's extremely important time. Deception could get 10 times worse than it is now. But it's bad enough now. And he's asking something from us. And that's where we're going. So with that, who's our prayer? If you don't have one, it's quite all right. Joel Pelly, I want you to pray. Would you mind? This is Joel. The way that God has been moving in your life and the things that he's been doing make you the perfect person to pray this prayer. And I just want to thank you for who you are and who you're becoming in Christ. So pray for us, would you? And lift up another church too.
1: Father God, as we gather here today and listen to the words that Kurt is about to speak to us, I just pray that you help us focus on those words and not be distracted uh, by our thoughts or, or anything else, God, but just maintain a focus on what you're saying through him and what you would want us to hear what you would want us to take away from that, and how it should convict us, each in our hearts, but differently, Lord, because it will touch each person in a different way. Amen. And I just pray that you're able to reach everyone that you want to reach today. And for people whose hearts aren't ready to receive it or hardened against it, Lord, that you would still use those words to even slightly soften it. And, and create cracks and create fissures through which things may permeate later, Lord, and a, a, as they soak over time. So I just pray, Lord, that your will be done, that your words be heard, and in Jesus' name that you would just bless us with what you're going to say through Kurt today and let us in turn use that blessing to bless others, Lord, as we go through the week. And I just pray for and lift up uh, Marina Christian Fellowship, uh, it's a church uh, down in Marina del Rey, uh, in Los Angeles, where uh, Hannah and I first uh, found a church that brought us back towards you, God, and started us uh, really, truly on our journey back Amen. towards you, God. And they're just—they're a church much like ours uh, in, a, in a tough community to to work in in Los Angeles, just blessing people in, in an honest and sincere uh, way, and they just—they just do your word and. And they walk the walk, and they talk the talk, and it's a wonderful church. So I just pray a blessing for them that your word be heard there today as well, that hearts be opened there, and that they're able to reach their community too. In Jesus' name, Father, amen.
0: I I don't know exactly where that church is, but you know, I live like a mile from there. All right, look, here's the question that we're asking. Is there a surefire way to get it right? is there? Is there? Is there a surefire way to get it right? Because if there is, tell me what the surefire way is, and I'll do my best to do it, right? And here's, here's what I want to do. I want to start walking through with this. Is it being in the Word all the time? This is, this is, I believe, you can see, okay? I'm pretty sure that this is the Bible. I, I can tell from the front yeah, from Kurt, uh, your loving dad and mom. I got saved in in Vail, Colorado. I called up my parents who had just gotten saved, and I said, God just did something, what the heck? What am I supposed to do? And they said, we don't have any idea, but we'll send you a Bible. (laughs) So they sent me a Bible. And I start, that was in 1976. And since 1976, I have been reading Scripture every morning, except for Saturdays, But I've been reading Scripture because it's just a break. It's just my personality. It needs a break. But I've been been reading major sections of the Word. I used to spend about an hour and a half every single morning when I first got saved. I'd spend about a half hour reading, and then I would go up and I would walk on I-80 for about an hour praying and talking to God about it. I don't know how many times I read this book, but if you go through there, you can see all of the little notes and and underlinings, and so on. Now, I had another Bible, because that one fell apart, and I went through it a couple of times, and then I got baptized in the Holy Spirit at 1983, okay, seven years later, and when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, it was through a church called Happy Church, <laughs> and uh, God, thank you. Thank you, God, for that church, despite what I'm about to say. Uh, thank you very much for that church, and I just want to show you this is called Dakes. Anybody know what a Dakes Bible is? Does anybody? Yeah. So Dakes. It looks like this. It looks a little bit, you know that those rabbis were looking at the word, and there's the word down the middle. See, the middle two columns, not even the whole of the column, but the middle two columns are the Bible, and all the rest are Dakes' notes. Cross references, comments, so on and so forth. Just a lot, it was one of the it probably not the original, but it was kind of like. Just a very early study Bible and a really good one that I would never recommend anybody buy. Okay? You can go through this and you can see again just page after page after page of me underlining and marking and underlining and, and I don't use highlighters, I, I just have never have, but I, I use and I write things in the margin. If you look at any book that I've been working on, there's literally, I fill up the, the side white piece and then it goes over to other pages and so on as I'm writing down comments and notes and so on. And this is a Bible that I have just absolutely gone through tons and I actually think that this is a second version because the first version, I think it fell apart. Because I read it so much. So at about nine years into my Christian walk, I had already read the Bible, I don't know, eight times, cover to cover, studied it, marked it up, wasn't just reading it and moving on studying what it meant, what it was trying to say, doing all that kind of stuff. I was in the word, in the word, in the word, in the word, in the word. And I have continued to be in the word. And by the way, we're looking at what's a surefire way to do it, and all of these are all good. Everything I'm saying to you, being in the word all the time is awesome. The question is whether or not it's a surefire way to get things right. As a Christian. And what I want to tell you is, is that about, it was right about well, so 1986, I got saved in 76, 86, so 10 years later, I was in New York. Uh, Janice is down at a Mere missions thing, so she can't tell me, but what was, it was in New York and there's, there was um, Elam Bible College, anybody know where that is? It's in upstate New York, I just can't remember the name. Uh, but the bottom line was, is I went to go visit my brother Dave, and we were talking about theology because that's all we either, either of us cared about, really. And we were talking about God and everything else and at one point in the conversation Dave said I wish I could take that Vakes Bible out of your hand and rip it up. Now when he said that obviously I did not agree with him. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you about a year later I understood exactly what he meant. I was in the word Deeply. And I was deeply wrong. The lens, the church that I was involved with was a faith church. I loved that church. To this day, it opened up my eyes to what scripture really was. God bless Marilyn Hickey. Don't watch her. I love her. But there's a lot of problems there. Here's one of the points I'm really trying to make right now. You do realize that in everything, there's a whole lot of God and a whole lot of not God. In everything. There's things to be found that are God, and there's a whole lot of the stuff that isn't him. And in this faith church, I learned how to trust God. And I learned how to believe for him. And I learned how to, that he really moved in miracles. I learned a ton about my Christian faith, and I am so happy that I spent my time there. But after about three years, it was all of a sudden, God started showing me what was wrong with that theology, and that it was about me, and that it wasn't really about him in the end, and that it was me defining in my own heart who he was rather than letting him be who he actually was. And there was a whole lot of problems in that. And so I left that church, and I left that Bible, and they ended up in something called Signs and Wonders. Anybody know that one back in the mid-80s? Signs and Wonders. Julie and I traveled all over the place. This is miracles, signs and wonders. You know, I say all the time, if you do a miracle, if God does a miracle through you, that'll really help you know who God is. I am standing by that statement utterly, but here's what I'm telling you you can still be having that kind of stuff happening and be getting it wrong. I watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miracles and I'm sure that tens and tens and tens were actually God. But I have seen a lot of miracles which genuinely were, here's how I feel about it. There may be something wrong with the thing, but the person that's coming that has a need is genuine and sincere in their heart, and they're coming to meet God for God to do something for them. And so they come honestly and sincerely, not understanding all the rest of it. And God tends to meet an honest and sincere heart. So he would do miracles, and I've seen, could not possibly begin to count how many, genuinely over a thousand miracles that I would absolutely say are absolutely miracles. God did a miracle, healed, delivered, uh, just rescued, just God doing what God does. But I also, at the end of a few years with that, began to see that there was a problem in it, that as much as I believed it was true, there was a serious problem in it. Once again, it was enthroning what I wanted God to do. And if I just had enough faith, and if I just this, and if I just that, and if I, and, and the bottom line was, you, you, I want you to realize something, how deeply, you need to know who I am, because you don't. I love you, and I don't know who you are either, right? really, right? I mean, we know each other well, and, but I wish we could just, you know, do this mind meld thing and understand somebody's whole background, but you have to understand, one of these guys that was pretty famous became friends with us and started staying at our house every time he came to Denver. And I'd say all he probably stayed there close to a year in the various trips and times and everything else. He was probably at our house for about that long. And this was a guy who would move in miracles, one of which happened to my own mother. And it was a genuine miracle. Can't explain it any other way. But I also saw a lot of things as I began, as God began to open my eyes, I saw a lot of things that people were claiming to be miracles, which weren't. And they just weren't. There's just no other way to put it. They were wishing well and hoping well and mob psychology and all kinds of other things, but they weren't miracles from God. And so now God sent us away to Virginia. So do miracles do it? No. By the time we get to revivals, and here's what I'm talking about, Kansas City would be sort of in the modern era, the first of those And then there was a few more that things happened, and so on. But but what I'm talking about now is I'm to Toronto. How many people know what Toronto means when I say Toronto? You know what that means. It's about half the congregation. That's about how old it is now. How old I am. But Toronto was a revival, a very genuine revival that started off really, really, really wonderfully, and then it became a circus. And there was all kinds of stuff going on there that were not the Lord and so on. And you have to understand, Julie and I, again, at this point in time, see, I was starting to understand that things were both good and bad and to discern them and to get out of it what was God. Never throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's not okay. Because there might be a problem and it doesn't mean there's not God in it. Go in and find out what's God and appropriate that. And the stuff that isn't God, filter it out. But see, that kind of thinking right there was contested by these revivals. Toronto, Brownsville, Lakeland, and Bethel. And and by the way, I put Bethel in a slightly different category. I'll explain that in one second. But let me just tell you, in all of those revivals, what was taking place was all kinds of manifestations and things that are all possible for God to do but an awful lot of it was being done, and I actually have, because I'm such a student of these things, because I, I worked on it so hard. I actually have the personal email correspondence between John Wimber, between, I can't remember his name right now, but he took over Alpha, and he, was the, he started Vineyard with John Wimber, and then Jack Hayford and John Maxwell. And there were a series of emails that John Wimber had sent to Hayford and Maxwell saying there's something wrong. I, I, he won 't listen to me, John or not won't listen to me, so please go up there and do that and, and, and all And anyway, the point is is, I researched and I went to events and I went to things and everything, but at this point in time, I wasn't going as a skeptic, understand. I'm going to see what's God and to see what's not and try and understand. You have to understand something. as a person who's deeply involved in revival and who absolutely believes in it, you have to understand, in L.A., I got totally critiqued because I believed that there was something in Toronto that was God. And the senior pastor there believed it was all nonsense. So I, got, I basically, it wasn't the exact reason, but it was one of the main reasons why I had to leave LA. And then I went to Jackson where I got critiqued because in Jackson, everybody was way into Toronto and I was saying, careful here, all the glitters is not gold. Here's some issues that you need to consider so that you can keep yourself discerned in a good place. So I got critiqued for thinking God was in it, and then I got critiqued for the other side. And I've been getting critiqued like that ever since. Because people just want it all, or, you know, it's just, you know, but look, we all got to go through our journeys. How did I learn how to discern it? Well, I went to Happy Church, and I studied Dick's Bible, and I did Signs and Wonders, and over time, I got a little more discerning about things. I have this weird thing. See, people say, You should protect people from things that are overboard. Some of you remember a gal who was at the church early on in the church's history who was a very prophetic woman, and she was genuinely prophetic. I mean, prophetic to the point that she came in to a guy at one point and said, you're having an affair. And he said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. Quit lying. And he was. And the only thing she ever said she did wrong is she said, I should have waited until I had the girl's name so that I could prove it to him. Now, when that happened, I didn't stop people. I knew that there was a problem, but I didn't stop anybody because I believe something. I don't believe you can go from the ditch of inactivity to the perfect high road. And that's saying nobody can do that. I think Dave Brunk is one of the few human beings I ever met in my life that somehow managed that feat. But here's what most of us do. You're in the ditch of inactivity and finally you realize that God is real and he does miracles and stuff happens. And so you start to come up and so Satan goes, oh, well, I'm going to come alongside of you and take you over to this other ditch of hyperactivity. And either way, you're in a ditch. You're not on the high road. But, you know, God does this with us, right? And it gets less and less and less until finally we are, over time, we get discerning and we get on to that thing that really is God so I'm not trying to protect people. If if you're going to cut off your hand, I'll probably stop that. But people need to experience things. You need to have passion and have it worked out. You need to go after the things of God. Don't be afraid to go outside because there might be a lion. You see it? But at the same time, understand there is a lion out there. And he's waiting to devour you, so be careful. Be discerning. God will protect you. But walk right. Do you see it? So revival, moves of God. Is that that a surefire way to get it right? No. Every single one of those revivals ended. I could do this in more detail with you. I'm a huge student of this stuff. Every single revival happened because God came to them at a certain moment of time and gave them an opportunity to choose to correct something they were doing. These emails from John Maxwell and John Wimber Three months after they came home and John Arnett said he wouldn't do the two little minor things he asked them to do, which was if people are jerking or barking like a dog or something when they're testifying, all they said was don't have them do that. The Holy Spirit's a God of order. And if they're manifesting like that, don't have them testify anymore. If they won't stop, get them off the stage. And secondly, when you're doing, when you're doing prayer lines, don't have somebody behind every single person to catch them because it's creating an expectation for people to have to fall. That's all. That's pretty two simple little things. And our night said no, and three months later, Toronto was done. And another couple of months, Brownville started. And they had their own moment, where they had a moment to repent, they had a moment to be humble, and they didn't take it. And then Lakeland, Todd Bentley, I just almost, almost that, that was kind of bad right from the beginning. But bottom line, God did miracles there too. And then you go, and then after that ended, you go over to Bethel. And the, the difference between Bethel and these other revivals at this point in time, do not misunderstand what I'm saying right now. I like Bethel but I can't support everything they're doing at all. Do you remember when Canon White was here? Canon White poked fun of him. He has the Bible from Smith Wigglesworth, which was a big healing guy, and he was talking about the fact that he had this old, old, old leather Bible and there were little flecks of the leather that would fall off and literally, and he meant this seriously, but literally the students would go after he got done speaking with this Bible, they would come and sweep up the little specks and they would laminate the specks and then put them someplace because that's where the power was. Then they would have Smith Wigglesworth's power because they had a little fleck off of a leather Bible that Smith Wigglesworth had. Now that's a problem. That's not God, period. But did you hear what I said at the beginning? Bethel's worship has been phenomenal. Thank God for Bethel's worship in the body of Christ. And there's been a lot of people who have been extremely passionate about God and learned how to be passionate about God, learned that God moves and does miracles, and things happen. So can I give them a a 100% go there and experience it? No, I've never gone. Why? Because I've been there, done that. And is it exactly true? No, of course not. Everything is going to be different. But at the same time, you do learn that things sort of nothing new under the sun. So I'm not defending myself here. I'm just telling you, I would go if God told me to go. He has not told me to go. Period. See, right now, I'm so, I'm like, I think I just ticked off. I had one half of the room ticked off, and I've ticked off the other half of the room, right? You say no, but I'm telling you, I can look into eyes, and I can know that there's people that are going, what the hell is he talking about? What's he saying? And I'm telling you what I'm trying to say. We need to become much more discerning than we are. And I'm standing on the wall and I'm begging for you to become much more discerning, all of us. There's good and God and not God in everything. And if you can't find where there's not God in something, then you're not seeing it truly and fully. Churches, I never want to hire anybody that hasn't had too bad experience in church. Why? because they have this pie-in-the-sky ideal about how wonderful people in church are, on staffs. And then they find out they're just human beings, and they're crushed. Does revival do it? No. How about asceticism? That's a good one, right? Monks, that kind of thing, giving everything away? Okay, now Paul said something. He said, I'm going to talk about something, and I don't want to. I'm telling you right now, I'm going to talk about something because I feel like the Lord's telling me to talk about it, and I don't want to. The person that stands before you right now is a person who made a decision in his life when he had millions of dollars, and that was to put all of my eggs in one basket, despite the fact that in my knowledge, I knew not to do it, and despite the fact that every single person I knew was telling me, this is stupid, don't do it. And my response to everybody who didn't like what I was doing and putting all my eggs in one basket was this. I told God that he had everything that I had, and I cannot do that and still have a nest egg just in case it doesn't work out. So I'm putting it all in here. And if he decides to take it, that's his business. I'm the person that stands before you who has literally given millions of dollars to the Lord. And he took it. And I lived in a poverty. I'd say I probably lived richer than most people in this building. And I've probably, I know that I've lived poorer than most of the people in this building. And I went through years of a kind of poverty that was so much that I was mocked for the clothes that I wore, which was incredibly painful, because I knew better. Hell, I used to wear Armani, and that was just a casual suit for me. I knew better, but I didn't have the money, and we didn't have the money, and we lived incredibly poor. Poor. I gave away, I've, I've given away my TV, and I've put it in the closet for three different times, I think, for what would add up to a period of years. Here's what I found out about all of that asceticism stuff. God is a God of abundance. He doesn't care what you have. He cares whether or not it has you. right? It's not the way to truth. I'm not saying, frankly, to be frank, in a materialistic society, we should practice more of this. You should fast. I'm somebody who has fasted for 21 days. I've also fasted for for seven days so many times I can't count it. It really does not look like that anymore. (laughs) But I have fasted probably as, I've fasted probably an aggregate total of two or more years of my life. This is who I am. Did it get me exactly right? No. Was it good? Yes. Was it all good? No. Was it good enough for me to do again? Yes. Did it get me exactly right in God? I found that you can fast for things. In fact, the, probably the most important fast I ever did, a three-day fast to ask God whether, how, to, how I should be directing my life. And, and I felt he told me something at the end of that fast which changed the direction of my life. And at this point in time, I don't think it was probably God. I think it was probably the end of a fast, and I heard something in my head and thought it was God. Okay? How about charity? Again... I want to have integrity before the Lord, but I can't count it. So I've been asking him, is it really over hundreds of thousands? And I think it is. I'm not talking about tithe. I'm talking about people that had money, and I'm not talking about when I was rich. If you take the percentage of money that I gave in offerings when I was rich to the percentage of money that I've had for the other times of my life, I gave probably more when I was poor as a percentage than I did when I was rich. Who had a need that I didn't meet? I've put homeless people up in the Brown Palace so that they would have a nice place to stay and maybe get some sanity about the world again and take a shower and get a really nice meal and paid for everything for days upon days upon days. I didn't have, I could have put them in a regular hotel, but I like the Brown Palace I figured they would too. You understand it? Charity? Is that going to get you right? Is that charity? If you're really charitable, are you always going to get things right? Because as you're sure far away. You can't possibly get it wrong. I'm just here to tell you that's not true. And how about ministry? And again, I'm going to end with this so that I can get the heck out of this topic. But when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit in 1983, well, already, before I ever got baptized in the Holy Spirit, I would led tons of people to the Lord. And when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, then I led a whole other bunch of people to the Lord and into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was ministering full-time before God ever called me to full-time ministry, which would have been like, like 1993. But I already had an extremely active, profitable, bring people to the Lord, you know, disciple them, help them, Just that was my life. That's what I was doing. And when it became the thing that I, when it became the only thing that I did, hardly anything actually changed. Is that the surefire way? It doesn't hurt (laughs) pouring your life out for people. Let me make a highly, let me make the best recommendation I'm going to make all day today. Not quite, because I think the end's a little better. But let me make a really strong recommendation to you. Try it. <laughs> Pour out your life for other people and just see what happens. It really, it really does tend to sort of keep things in a more even keel. It tends to bring things down to a place to where if you don't have God right, it doesn't make a difference in their life. So it does. I think probably of all of the things that I'm up here, that one probably is going to get you about closest. But, but when I say this, and because I've gone long, does it really say what I think it says up there? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to short. I'm going to shorten this next little section. I just want to say, when I say all this stuff, I'm smart. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm smart, and I can look into eyes and I can know what people are thinking. And when I make all these claims up here, I'm telling you, I stand in good company. And the good company is Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards is the father of what's called the Great Awakening. And most of you don't even know what that is. How many people know what the Great Awakening is? I mean, really know what it is. That's pretty good for a room. When we talk about revivals in Toronto and Brownsville and all that kind of stuff, those those were blips in a puddle compared to what the Great Awakening was. The Great Awakening was the Puritans came over in the 1600s and created a country that was puritanical. And a hundred years later, 1730s, when the Great Awakening happens, a hundred years later, this country was an outpost, like you would find in Alaska or North Dakota, where the roughnecks live, and drunk drugs and drink and sex and prostitution, and stuff is rampant. This country was a mess. This country, this is before we became a country. And this country was a mess. In a puddle of its own puke, not everything, but the amount of debauchery and the amount of drunkenness and the, how far we'd come with the Britannical was ridiculous. And then the Great Awakening happened, and it turned the course of a nation. We would not be the America that we have become were it not for that. I'm not saying America's perfect, but we would not have become America were it not for the Great Awakening. It reset the course of an entire nation. In those revivals that I was talking about, they would reference Jonathan Edwards' two books that he wrote during the Great Awakening. In both of those books, he says this. There's a lot of bad things happening, but you people who are criticizing serve the devil and you need to stop. Stop. Now, I'm a student of this stuff, and so I'm studying, studying, studying. It took me probably two years of studying about revivals to discover that Jonathan Edwards wrote a third book. Those first two books defending the the revivals, you could find anywhere because the revivals were selling copies of them, and they were in print. The third book was the book that Jonathan Edwards wrote after the Great Awakening, looking back and saying, what did we do wrong? Because we did something so wrong, God had to end the Great Awakening. That's this book. And you want to know why I hold this book up to you right now? You couldn't find that in print. I looked all over the country. The internet had just started. I looked everywhere. I couldn't even hardly find it in libraries, and I couldn't get it, and I wanted to have a copy and everything else. I was poor at the time, and I finally found a guy who would get the manuscript and would make a book for me, hand make a book for me. It cost me 75 bucks way back then. It probably, probably would have cost 250 bucks, although now we have the technology to do it easily. But if, in today's dollars, if this, was, this was like $1,000 to me. But I wanted to read that third book because I wanted to see what he thought went wrong. And he says in this page right here that's marked up the way I mark up books. The devil has prevailed against the late great revival of religion in New England, so happy and promising in its beginning. Do you hear what he says right there? The revival started off awesome, amazing, life changing. But do you see what he just said? The devil won in the end. Not that God didn't change a whole lot of things. Satan goes on with mankind as he began with them, meaning the garden. He suddenly brought all their happiness and glory to an end by pretending to advance it to higher degrees, to higher degrees. You remember what Satan said to Eve? Oh, God, he's just trying to keep something from you. You need to learn this stuff. You need this too. So he was pretending to advance it to a higher degree. Now here's what Jonathan Edwards says in his preface that covers this whole book. After religion has revived in the church of God, people are commonly most exposed where they're least sensible of the danger. They neglect to carefully look all around them because their attentions are focused on their critics and other things. They They don't look all around them and the devil comes behind them and gives them a fatal stab unseen. Come up here. Here's here's the image that he's portraying with us, okay? You're not, but they're your critics and you're focused on them and Satan is coming alongside of you and saying, you see, you know more than they do. You're better than they are. Do you see? You got more than they got. Do you see? And here's what he's doing behind you the whole time. Thank you. He gives them a fatal stab unseen and has the opportunity to give a more home stroke and wound the deeper because he strikes at his leisure, being unobstructed by no guard or resistance. Because we're so convinced that we're right, we're the first generation that has ever experienced any revival. No, that's not true. We're the generation that has experienced more revival than any other generation, so they have nothing to teach us. I'm fully convinced of something about revivals. They will happen when a generation comes along that's humble enough to learn from what came before. But we don't do that as human beings. God is doing extraordinary things with me and they're more than anybody's ever experienced. And when you puff yourself up, that is Satan puffing you up so that you can go up higher so that you can crash down more. This is, by the way, the English version Okay, this is a, this, it's only this big. So if you're going to buy a book on the Jonathan Edwards ones, don't try and plow through that thing. Just buy this. It's called The Experience That Counts. This is the table of contents. This is what I'm going to skip through really quick. It does not prove that it's God or not God. It does not prove that our emotions are spiritual and spiritual. It does not prove that it's God or not God. Every time you hear that, think God or not God. It does not prove that it's God or not God if the emotions, if the feelings you have are strong. It does not prove if they produce great effects on the body, if there's manifestations. It does not prove if they produce a great warmth and readiness to talk about Christianity. Well, that seems like a pretty good evidence that it's God. But he's saying, no, it isn't. And then he gives you scriptural reasons why not. Every one of these is backed up by scripture. It does not prove if it's God or not God if we did not produce them by our own efforts. In other words, if we're just sitting there and something happened to us, it doesn't prove that it's God or not God. Now, by the way, let's be clear. We're talking about the not God part so that we learn how to discern. But there is a God part, too. It might actually be God. You just have to be humble about it. It does not prove it's God or not God if they come to us unaccompanied by a Bible verse. He talks about how scripture being right on the tip of your tongue is not proof, and he shows you why. If there seems to be love in them. It's not proving it's God or not God if we experience many kinds, lots of manifestation. It doesn't prove that it's God or not God if comfort and joy seems to follow. Wouldn't you say if all of these stuff were true, you'd think you were in God? Learn from the Father, the great awakening. Even here you can be deceived. Now, do all of those things. (laughs) It does not prove that it's God or not God if they cause us to spend much time in worship. (laughs) How can that be? (laughs) It does not prove it's God or not God if they cause us to praise God. It does not prove that it's God or not God if they produce assurance of salvation. It does not prove if it's God or not God if if we can give a very moving account of what God did to you, something that moves other people to tears, not just you. So at this point in time, everybody ought to have a big question in their mind. What the heck does prove it? (laughs) I could show you the chapter titles, but instead let me show you where they all come from, every one of these things. Galatians, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. To take a very complex book and make it extremely simple, you will know them by their fruit. If a person is getting puffed up, If they're better than, if they think they have something that other people don't, listen to that one. If you think you have something that other people don't, all of this is evidence of something happening that isn't God. What he's arguing for is when it really is God, what will happen is it'll change you in ways that comport with this. You'll know them by their fruit. Now, I want to go into more detail on this, but I can't. If you want to hear more about it, talk to me. Because here's what I want to go after right now. How, what's the surefire way to get it right? God <laughs> saving you. That's the only way. You can be in the scripture. You can be in worship. You can be in prayer. You can be in work. You can be doing all kinds of things for God. You can be doing miracles. You can be doing everything, and still be wrong in some degree, in some way. And I just want to thank God for saving me from the Bibles and the way that I thought about the scripture. I want to thank Him for saving me from faith. I want to thank Him for saving me from a revivalist spirit that wasn't right. And I also want to thank Him for being in the Scripture. I also want to thank Him for great churches. I also want to thank Him for revivals. I want to thank Him for these things, but I also want to thank Him for saving me from that part of it that wasn't Him. Do you see what I'm saying here? We need, we need God to save us. From ourselves, there is no surefire formula to get there. There's only a relationship with a God who, when you're really trying, he will come alongside of a person that's really trying and help them out. He will open your eyes. You may go through a ditch. Does that bother him? He's using it to teach you. Dave Brunk got there one way. Kurt Brunk had to get there another way. But we both got there, I think, I hope. But do you see how I even feel about it? Even when I say that, I think I hope. This is Paul saying, what if I ran the whole race and I disqualified myself? I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Does that sound like a good gospel, you know, message in our loving, tolerant churches? God saves us because he is love. And that love has two directions. First, it's him loving us. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. My father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch you from the father's hand and the father and I are one. How do you get saved? God saves you. But that doesn't mean that there's not something that we do because the movement goes back the other way too. It's not just him loving us, it's us responding to him. And this is when Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Do you know what I think is a much worse lesson to get out of this message and the church in general than the one that you might think? Here's what I think the worst message you could get out of this this sermon is. You know, it's all very confusing, and it's all very complicated and it's all very rough, so I'm just going to stay over here, and God will take care of it. If you got that out of this message, you are missing the greatest commandment. The reason why I got to a place to where God saved me was because I loved him so much that I went into places trying to get it right with him. I would say it another way. God doesn't save a stone that's sitting there. He saves a stone that's moving because he can direct it. You see it? Let me end with this. There's two keys to hearing God's still, small, quiet voice ever better. I'm not saying these two will keep you. These are not surefire ways. But there's two things that you can do that will, in fact, help you hear his still, small, quiet voice. The first one is... See that FM signal right there? You know what an FM signal is? It has a certain amplitude and it has a certain, what's it called? Is it magnitude this way? What is it? We have length. Okay, so it's length and amplitude. And if you change either one of those, you get a different sound. And so here's what the world is doing with you right now. And here's what it sounds like. That's literally an FM dial being turned, and what the world's trying to do is, oh, listen to this station. Oh, no, no, listen to this station. Oh, no, there's some music. Oh, no, there's this, there's this. What it's trying to do is get you to listen to anything except for this. The still, small, quiet voice, which sounds like this. Could you bring it down just a little bit more in volume? I want it to hardly be hearable, even more. The sound system we put in is so great. Now we've got this problem, but yeah, right about there. Now here's what I want you to hear. This is what God, this is a metaphor, of course, this is what God sounds like, right? But God is talking to you down here in a still, small, quiet voice. Can you hear that when this is happening? And I can tell you right now, that same note is still playing. But you don't hear it, do you? So you have to do something. You have to do devotionals. You've heard this a million times from me. I am not prophesying something. People are going to freak out when I say this, but it just feels like a good way to communicate it. We're about to go on a drive. Go help my folks. If I shouldn't make it to that, or if I had a crash and died, you know what I want you to say at my memorial? He taught me how to find God in a devotional. That's the one thing I want you to say. That's the most important thing to me. He taught me how to find God one-on-one, still, small, quiet voice. Prayer and word. You're not going to get there with just prayer, and you're not going to get there with just the word. You got to give substantial and real time to both. And it can't be while you're showering or driving to work. And there's all this FM noise going on. It has to be tied. It has to be extracted from. And everybody would say, you can do that, Kirk, because you're a pastor and you get to control your own schedule. And what I'm telling you is, is I didn't become a pastor until I was 40 years old. And for the first 20 years before that, I had jobs and I had responsibilities and I was still doing devotionals. And and that was word and prayer and I was still doing Sabbath. By the way, on devotionals, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's probably good enough for us. He withdrew to the wilderness for prayer often. Do you? But the other one, of course, is Sabbath. Here's what God says about it. Remember to observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You have six days every, day, every week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is Sabbath day of rest, dedicated to the Lord. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. And every person in here that works really hard and has one of these 60, 70, 80 hour a week jobs says, there is no possible way that I can take a devotional or a Sabbath. And I'm telling you, I was always able to. No matter what job I had, no matter how hard I was worked, and I always have worked long hours. It's just my personality. And I always found a way for Sabbath. I always found it. I had to ask bosses for things sometimes. I literally had to go and say, look, I need a Sabbath day. I need this day. Then I would switch it around. I would do whatever I could to make it work, but I would always take it. And I do wanna say something. You must keep the Sabbath day for it's a holy day. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Because you didn't keep the Sabbath, why? Because you infect others, you take them out of peace in being able to hear the slow one, the slow deep wave, the God wave. And let me say, we said it was good enough for Jesus on devotionals. Well, if it's good enough for God, maybe it's good enough for us. In six days, the Lord made the heaven, the earth and the sea and everything in it, but on the seventh, he rested. Look, God saves those who know him. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, you have to get us to where we know you. You're our only hope. We've looked at a whole bunch of formulas, and we know that those formulas aren't going to work. We know that there's good in them, and we're going to get the good out of them. We're going to do them all because they're good. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, I'm asking begging you, pleading you. We are all each individually saying, please God, if you don't save me, I'm not saved. And it doesn't just mean salvation. It means if you don't save me from the things that I think are right, I believe them with all of my heart, but it turns out they're just wrong. Or at least part of them is wrong. And God, we come to you now with a bent knee and a humble heart saying no matter how right we think we may be, we recognize that we may actually be wrong. And so I'm asking you in Jesus' holy and precious name that by your love and your grace, you would save us. Take that communion that's in front of you. In the lower cup, God, is this life that I have been leading where I have broken covenant with so much. I put my finger in there and I break it to say that I have not been about your still, small, quiet voice. And I have not been about bending my knee and staying humble. And in that, I've gotten it jacked up but you heal me on the cross and so I lift this cup and I say in Jesus' holy and precious name heal me Lord thank you Jesus take this cup together would you and now we take this other cup in which is the life that God wants to lead you do for us it was his life poured out for us given to us to take it And to put that life in us that we might become. Enter into the life that you have for us. And so in Jesus' most magnificent name, Lord God, we lift up this cup and we say to you, I want the life that you have for me. Say that as you're doing it. I want the life that you have for me. And I take this cup, God's saying, make it happen in me.